Welcome to the Emerging Litigation Podcast. This is Tom Hagee, litigation enthusiast, or enthusiast. I'll say it uh, a couple of ways before we're done today. I am the founder of HB Litigation Conferences and Custom Legal Content. This is a collaboration between my companies and Law Street Media and Fastcase. So for some of you, uh, you probably never even used a fax machine, but many of you have, and I certainly have. When I was a young reporter, editor, managing editor, fax machines were a big deal. You know, nothing could be so fast. We were writing about court documents when I was at Mealy's Litigation Reports. And uh, yeah, faxes were huge. And they would, uh, they were, I was reading in, L.A. Times article about this from September 11th, 1991. Those were more innocent times. They uh, they talked about the fax revolution at home and at work. Facsimile machines have become, oh boy, the or essential business tools, something like that. The essential business tool. I think they've got an error on their website. Can you imagine? So th- that's what they, they were talking about. And uh, people were quoted as saying, hey, the fax has made my life a lot simpler. And a whole lot of people's lives a lot simpler. Back in 1991, they say not. Uh, this wasn't always the case because in the 1970s, they were used mostly by Fortune 500 companies for getting and sending urgent documents. They were expensive machines, too, the LA Times wrote. They were about $18,000, and they took six minutes to transmit one page and weighed about 100 pounds. That's uh, slightly more than my cat. Then in the late 1980s, they say, the the state-of-the-art technology took over, and boom, there was an explosion. At the time, there were more than 3 million fax machines used in the U.S., cranking out more than 82 billion pages every day. I'm going to wager that that's that's about every second uh, now, a days, not to to make fun of them, because God knows this was a a new thing and, uh, and, and very cool at the time. Um, let's see, they were, the fax machines were popular. They were pretty cheap. Then they got faster. They, they could send a page in 20 seconds or less. And, um, then they weighed, you know, 15 to 20 pounds and, uh, the prices had come way down. So there was a big explosion. And I remember as an editor, you know, waiting patiently for an attorney to send me a document. And then maybe another reporter was waiting for a document. So we would all have to wait and it was in queue and things like this. One thing that was really annoying, though, was after a while, uh, marketers started to get uh, get the idea that they could send you their uh, direct marketing pieces by your fax machine. And boy, was that annoying. Not only did it uh, take up, you know, you had to wait for some stupid fax to come. I guess you could probably cancel it. I don't even remember anymore. But uh, you had to wait for this thing to come over. Plus, it used your expensive fax paper. How irritating was that? So it was pretty irritating. So I I mentioned that because it had a, it had a, it was some of the uh, impetus behind what we're going to talk about today. And if I've overstated that, I'm sure someone will correct me. But in 1991 is when uh, the Telephone Consumer Protection Act went into uh, into uh, into the world. I don't know. Went into the what? It became enacted, became law. Um, I don't write these things down ahead of time. And uh, as our uh, as our guest today uh, writes for in an article for the forthcoming journal on the emerging issues in litigation, the TCPA, as we're going to call it, it had humble beginnings. He said, with the bill's sponsor explaining that the statute would permit consumers to bring small claims cases 
without an attorney, that's in quotes, and provided for an amount of damages fair to both the consumer and the telemarketer. So 28 years later, is that where we are now, 28? I'm going to say, I don't know. It's uh, almost three decades later, the Eighth Circuit um, Court of Appeals affirmed a district court decision to reduce a $1.6 billion jury award to a TCA, TCPA class action. Reduced it to only $32 million because, you know, that $1.6 billion was, quote, shockingly large and, quote, oppressive and in violation of the due process clause. So that's big, man. Okay, so we, here we were. We had uh, people like me kind of annoyed that uh, our fax was taken up or we were being interrupted by pesky telemarketers. How dare they? And we thought, hey, we could, we could go after somebody for a few bucks or they could get fined for a little bit. Right? They didn't anticipate $1.6 billion in an award that would be reduced to only $32 million. Our, our, uh, our guest writes that with, while this reduction was significant, it was for a film that ultimately grossed over just $3 million. So that didn't, that didn't work out so well. Funny how we throw these numbers around, you know? I wouldn't get out of bed for less than $5 million. Far from its humble roots, he writes, the, the act has blossomed into one of those popular forms of class action litigation. Is anyone surprised? And in no small, small part, thanks to the fact that these eight-figure awards are not uncommon. You get statutory damages of 500 bucks per call, and that's troubled if the violation is willful or knowing. Do I do anything to you that's willful or knowing? Elements of these claims are not that complex either. I mean, he's not saying you can just do this in your sleep, but you know what? Let's just jump right into, you know, why, why have me talk, talk to you about the article? It is, it is coming out. We'll make sure, you know, if you write to me at editor at litigationconferences.com, I'll make sure you see it. We will eventually be posting it. Fastcase will be uh, putting out the full version here in a month or so. And then we'll, we'll post it on our uh, website. So go to litigationconferences.com and take a, keep an eye out for it. So fortunately... You have more than me to listen to about this subject. Our guest is Joe Apatov. He's a member in the McGlinchey-Stafford Consumer Financial Services Litigation Practice Group. He's based in Fort Lauderdale. He litigates on behalf of financial services or services. Yes, on behalf of financial services clients in both state and federal courts with an emphasis on defending banks, mortgage lenders, private label card issuers, and auto finance companies. He's worked extensively with major consumer protection statutes, including the Fair Debt Collection Practices Act, the Fair Credit Reporting Act, the Real Estate Settlement Procedures Act, and the Florida Consumer Collection Practices Act, and of course, the Telephone Consumer Protection Act. So with that, let's just jump right into the uh, my interview with Joe Apatov. Hope you enjoy it. Joe Apatov, thank you very much for doing this today. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. I look forward to talking to you about this topic. Okay. So we're talking about the TCPA. Uh, could you just give us, uh, listeners, kind of a high-level view? What What is it? Yeah, so the TCPA, to give the very, very high level, this was passed back in 1991 and doesn't really have a lot of updates. So it relates to calling technology. So you can imagine how kind of outdated a lot of it is. But the general gist is that... There's prohibitions against making automated calls to telephone numbers without a consumer's or a person's consent. 
And there's a lot of nuances in there, but kind of those are the pillars. If you're calling using the technology that's prohibited without the consent and where it kind of gets a little nuanced is what type of consent is sufficient, what qualifies as those technologies. There's automated dialing systems. There's also pre-recorded messages and artificial voices. And really hammering on those is where a lot of the litigation develops. Okay. So when I get to my fifth call of the day about my car warranty, um, is that, is that, I haven't asked for it. I can't, I barely even, I, I look at my cell phone now and I don't even, I barely don't even want to answer it because it's usually them. Um, so is that, is that what we're talking about here? So the answer is very much yes and very much no. And that's kind of the problem. So those are the calls that really bother people and make robocalls kind of this four letter word. The problem is generally when you're seeing the litigation, it relates to a bank calling their customers. It relates to people with, uh, or companies with business relationships that are calling their customers or have a legitimate purpose for these calls. But because it's such kind of a unwanted and undesirable thing, generally speaking, because of these car warranty calls and different Mm -hmm. things like that, everything gets lumped in together and gets kind of the very harsh treatment. Um, And one of the things that kind of those calls brings up is a big divide where there's different requirements if you're dealing with telemarketing, which is what the statute was really focused on versus um, ordinary loan servicing calls and things of that nature, informational calls. Um, So those calls would absolutely be telemarketing. They don't have your consent. So, um, where it would draw a line could be if they're using one of the prohibited technologies, yes, if not, no. If someone's actually on the other end of the line saying, hey, your warranty is up, it might be one thing. But if they're using an automated voice or a pre-recorded message that says, your warranty on the car that you have is coming up, press one to be connected, then you're likely getting a violation there. Gotcha. Okay. And just for the record, I don't even have a car. So that's what makes these <laughs> makes these even more annoying. Um, okay. So that's, so that's cool. So, so why should companies pay attention to the, uh, the TCPA and I guess, we, yeah, to the TCPA and, and then there are some state similar state laws too. Why should they pay attention? Why should they take these seriously? And the, the reason is that these statutes do not apply in the way that they were intended. And The example is there was a recent uh, $925 million judgment, I believe it was, against a company out in Oregon. Not your client. Not my client. (laughs) There was recently a $75 million settlement for phone calls that are not, they might be annoying. They're not harming anybody. And they were not intended to have kind of this draconian impact. But Really, when the statute originated, the idea was that people could file claims in small claims court for a few hundred bucks without needing an attorney. But the statute provides for $500 per call in statutory damages, and that can be tripled if the calls are, if there's a willful violation. When calls are being made, typically there's going to be a call campaign, and it's very easy. I mean, it's difficult not to reach the millions of dollars of liability from ordinary use even if you're a small company and the statute of limitations is four years. So you can get hit with a, I mean, a small company, if they call one person a day using one of the prohibited technologies, you're looking at a 
$5 million class action pretty much or more. So there's so much at stake. And because the elements in the case are so simple, it's a very, very dangerous statute that you need to be careful about. Uh, Cause I mean, judgments can be crippling. There was the most egregious one that I saw, which did get reduced was a $1.6 billion jury verdict against a movie. I think it was like a small movie company that was uh, promoting a religious movie they were putting out, made eight days of calls. And the number of calls was about 3 million calls, which granted was way too many calls to make, but $1.8 billion. And there in a kind of an unusual stance, the judge reduced it from $500 per call to $10 a call and still a crippling amount of money, but not 1.8 billion. And that was upheld on appeal. Also not your client. Not our client. (laughs) (laughs) We only have good stories with our clients. I'm going to say that throughout. And one time you're going to say something and you say, actually, Tom, that was my client. So if you could just shut up. (laughs) One of the important things in these cases is kind of recognizing when you are in trouble so that it doesn't balloon into those types of things. In um, the one that settled for $75 million recently, my understanding is that at mediation, it, it went through insurance, but at mediation, they would not settle for, I think, a half a million dollars. So part of it is recognizing when you're in trouble and settling so you don't get that far or if you have a good case. So fortunately, we make the right decisions there. <laughs> yeah, good. All right. So about all these uh, robocalls I'm getting, you you would not be my attorney, I guess. Uh, you would be <laughs> I'd be looking for someone else. <laughs> That's correct. I'll, I'll explain explain that in the introduction. <laughs> okay, so that's why they should pay attention to them. That's certainly eye-popping. Uh, 1.6 billion. How do I get some of that? Um, uh, well, then I would have a car and uh, I would I would be able to have an extended warranty. So uh, also uh, companies uh, are delegating a lot of their uh, marketing and outreach and stuff. So why should companies uh, why or how can they oversee their vendors and be careful who they do business with? So one of the things that's important there is that, so the TCPA is strict liability and there's different, I mean, it depends where you are, but kind of vicarious liability theories apply. Um, if you're in the ninth circuit, that's actually one place where you have kind of favorable rulings on it, which is unusual because for the TCPA, most everything there is unfavorable. But um, if you can be held vicariously liable for your vendor, um, part of it is going to be, did they conduct their call operation consistent with what you instructed them to do? And if they did not, you might have an argument against vicarious liability because they're acting outside the scope. I, I I had a recent one that... Um, without getting into any details of the involvement, um, a vendor was supposed to only accept inbound calls and while manufacturing records was making outbound calls. And then the the company got sued instead of the vendor and the company was able to successfully argue that they did not authorize this. This was not within the scope of their agency, but it's a, again, a crippling amount of liability depending potentially if the outcome comes differently. Yeah. I've been wanting to ask somebody who knows, because I have this theory, because I get these calls. This is all about me. I hope you realize that, Joe. <laughs> I, I get the, I'm just trying to get free legal advice. Um, <laughs> and if you know anything about my car warranty, I'd be happy to 
hear about that too. But no, I, I get these calls and I, and sometimes I just, I have to pick up. It's on my cell. So I pick up and then they hang up and it makes you want to call them back. Is that a, is that a tactic they use to get you to call them? So I have seen things about that and there's actually prohibitions. Um, this is not something that I really encounter often, but there's a prohibition in the regulation related to making a call, a telemarketing call, and then disconnecting within 15 seconds. Basically, the idea being that you need to give enough time that the person can answer and all that. And I, I think part of the purpose is to prevent that callback and to kind of try and find a way to work around these issues. Uh, more often, though, I think the issue on those is that the company is using a telephone dialing system that is designed to automatically disconnect kind of these, these systems are designed to optimize the number of phone calls that can be made. So a predictive dialing system is kind of the chief one that gets used. The idea is that if you make one call per person in your call center, then there's a lot of people in your call center who are sitting around twiddling their thumbs. So a predictive dialer kind of is able to predict how often people answer kind of all these different circumstances. And the intention is that they will call the correct number of people so that the number of people that answer will optimize the use of the people in the call center. Unfortunately, if that's not configured correctly, you can call someone and then no one's available and it can disconnect or you can be sitting there waiting for someone to show up or the call might just think that something on your phone hit a voicemail and it'll disconnect. There's all those kind of different problems that can come up with the system if it's not operating correctly. So say somebody has been on the receiving end of a, of a class action. So what should they do? They, first, they call you. Exactly. <laughs> the first thing is really to take it seriously, because even though very often these cases are kind of drummed up, there, there might not be something valid to it. The amount of liability at the other end is enormous. And so we recently had a class action that we successfully defeated certification and righted the ship. But before we got involved, the case seemed relatively simple. It was calls that were being made, not for telemarketing purpose. They were offering a free service for the convenience of a customer that would not cost the customer anything and was basically just making the customer's life easier. And if that's the case, then one level of consent is required where you only need um, prior express consent. When you have a business relationship with a company, if you give them your phone number, that's going to be prior express consent. There, prior express consent is fairly easy to get in the normal course of dealings with people. But if you're telemarketing, then you need prior written consent. And that is more complicated. And this case appeared to be just a prior express consent and they had it. But then there was a ruling by the judge that there was it was actually the purpose of the calls was dual purpose. So it was both for this informational, hey, here's the service, but also for marketing. And therefore you needed the prior written consent, which was lacking. And so there's surprises that can come in there and you need to be prepared for them because if you get too far into the case without developing that, you may be, you're having your back against the wall. And even if you could ultimately win, if you have a class that's certified 
and you are facing a call campaign with 10,000 phone calls made over a four-year period, which would not be a ton, um, I think that's $15 million in liability you're looking at right there if you lose. And if that's the case and the class gets certified, are you really going to want to fight there? You're probably going to want to settle out. So it's, mm-hmm. it, it's very scary as you're getting further along. So you need to really make sure you line up the case the way you want and tackle things early so that it doesn't get out of hand and you don't have these overwhelming pressures to settle because the alternative is just palatable and bankruptcy yeah. potentially way way more serious than than mo- most people think right. i don't think you, you think of i mean i know i know the, <clears throat> the 1.6 billion one was knocked down but you know even if you knock that down to half <laughs> right and, uh, and, that's huge and those massive awards are not rare by any means oh, and okay. multi-million dollar settlements are common i mean it's it, it's very difficult if you get caught in the crosshairs of one of these, you can be in a lot of trouble if you can't successfully defeat certification and go through all of that. And in our case, even though we got this ruling that the calls were dual purpose kind of unwound and the judge went back on that when we more or less had her reconsider it, um, that is not an anomalous conclusion that's been reached. I've recently saw a FedEx case, I think it was, maybe it was FedEx, maybe it was UPS, one of those carriers who sent text messages to customers when their packages were stuck in um, in customs. Mm-hmm. As they tell them, hey, your package is delayed. And the judge ruled that that had a dual purpose of marketing because they could get additional charges from return shipping because of that. So the, the idea, in our case, the idea was that it's dual purpose because by offering this free service and the free service was performing an end of lease inspection prior to turning the vehicle in, where they would come to your house, they would do whatever you wanted. And so it was completely for the consumer's convenience. That was to generate goodwill for the consumer with the hopes that you'll like the company and buy more. But it's kind of absurd because everything a corporate, a for-profit corporation does is ultimately in, in, intended to make money. Good customer service. How dare you have good customer exactly. service? So if you're going to accept that proposition, then every action by a corporation is dual purpose. Right. And if it's not, then the board of directors is probably breaching their fiduciary duty. So yep. that's just, you can't do that because then you, you can't communicate with your customers. And most customers, I think, would want to know, hey, you don't need to come and bring in your vehicle at when you're turning it in and then find out what the inspection is and have no opportunity to fix it beforehand or do anything. Yeah. Yeah. We'll come to your house. I would like to know that. And in our case, it was interesting because one lawsuit ever, we never saw another lawsuit of someone complaining about this because people were happy with it. Yeah. Yeah. So, I, I, yeah. No, I'm sitting there thinking... If I've got a package, if I care about the package at all, I want to know if it's stuck somewhere or, I mean, I like getting the notices. Oh, it's, it'll be delivered at nine rather than seven. I don't know. I, I don't know. Okay. That's just me. That kind of thing doesn't annoy me. That seems strange. Like you said, uh, any, anything a company does could be considered a dual purpose. And these, these became popular also um, in uh, sports arenas where they would have these things where say, Oh, tech, text this number and 
enter into whatever promotion and there would be an automated text in response to you. And the argument was whether you had consent there and a known, I think the LA Clippers settled a case for, I think $5 million, many, many sports uh, organizations settled large TCPA class actions over what seemed to be just a kind of a fun in stadium yeah. event because there was a text message that would go out. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I, I just feel like there are some really legitimate reasons. And, um, you know, I think that's, for me, that's, that's the confusion because there are legitimate reasons. I get calls and it looks like a robo call. Then it's like my online pharmacy telling me something's going to be delivered. And I'm like, Oh, okay. I needed to know that or, or whatever. Um, so yeah. So, you know, in, in things packaging, I, li- I like that stuff. I mean, like I get stuff from my dentist and I think they're, uh, I think they're, you know, they're wrong. So wait, we're talking about, okay. So this covers, um, this covers texts. I guess I should say that this covers texts and calls. Is that, is that right? Kind of. That's actually kind of an interesting point. So there was a, I believe it was from the FCC who, um, of issues regulations related to or interprets the regulation that had said at one point that text messages are calls under the statute. There's not really a good basis for that, I don't think. Uh, I mean, back in 1991, clearly that was not anticipated. People didn't have cell phones. So, um, so that was something that evolved and courts have accepted it, but there was actually in a recent Supreme Court case involving text messages, uh, Justice Thomas questioned whether that was actually a valid conclusion. He, he didn't get into it, but he, he definitely raised kind of a sight on it saying, I don't know about that one. Mm-hmm. So it, it's kind of a fictional leap that's been accepted, but it is something that could be attacked, but it's not something that you're going to successfully attack without getting to the Supreme Court, most likely. So for the ordinary uh, defendant, it's not relevant, really. Okay. Well, what about telegrams and teletype? <laughs> so, well, actually, that's where it's funny because this, the TCPA, when it was enacted, was really concerned about fax, message, fax messages that were tying up fax machines. When they were talking about mobile phones, the biggest concern was people that had a mobile phone in their car, or a car phone connected to a fax machine in their car. Oh, God. And tying right. up that. So for the original, the beginning period of TCPA cases, fax machines were really where the litigation was happening. It was not about these calls because people didn't have cell phones. And the other kind of prompt for the statute, which shows kind of how far awry it is from the original purpose, is that there's an exception for calls for emergency purposes. But one of the things that was a problem they were trying to address was Calls that were tying up emergency lines, police lines, hospitals, uh, fire stations. And it was because it prohibited an automatic dialing system is a number that calls using a random or sequential number generator. That's a very short abbreviation, but it's about this random or sequential number generation. And what that means is if you have a system that calls 1111111112, then that's a problem. And that's what was being used at the time. So you're calling every number in order and you're going to hit police stations. You're going to hit emergency lines. You're going to cause problems across the board. And there were hundreds of thousands of these being used at the time the technology was implemented. The other one is random dialers. And 
unfortunately, that random dialer is going to sometimes get 911. Oh. And I don't care what comes next, you have a problem there. So right. it was causing serious problems in tying up lines that needed these important calls. And then the other component was the concern about people getting woken up at all hours of the night, elderly people needing to get out of bed to get to their phone, all these different things that don't apply to a text message and don't apply to anyone who has a cell phone because you're not getting out of bed to get it. You're not having to get up to get it. You're looking at your phone saying, all right, ignore. Half the time, your telephone provider is probably blocking the call if it's not someone that you want it from anyway. So the what how it's being used now is so far kind of a right. field from what was intended. Sounds like and it. So you get lots of strange decisions because you're trying to fit a round peg in a square hole. The statute does not work for current technology. And so part of the argument that's always developed is, should the statute be adapted to address current technology that has the similar impact? Or should we say, great work statute, you got rid of this technology we didn't like. Mission accomplished Mm -hmm. and move on. So that's kind of one of the fights that often happens between kind of the plaintiff's bar and the defense bar on how you should interpret this this statute. Right, because it's not now blocking emergency lines. It's not necessarily getting you up out of bed in the middle of the night where you can trip down the stairs. Uh, You're not using up fax paper. (laughs) And and that's where there's been some development on Article 3 standing and whether you can bring these lawsuits in federal court. And one of the issues, the 11th Circuit here for me in Florida has been kind of an outlier here, but has said, Florida is an outlier. (laughs) I know it's very unusual. (laughs) I'll try to remain seated. (laughs) Uh, A a single text message or potentially multiple text messages is not enough to give you article three standing because you don't have a concrete injury because kind of what the court equated it to was you're walking down the street and someone waves a flyer in your face. Yeah. It's annoying, but it's not a federal matter. Right. And, but then at the same time, the 11th circuit also said, Well, a single phone call is enough for Article 3 standing because phone calls are more annoying because instead of just the chirp of a text, it can be a ring, which it's kind of a funny conclusion because who knows? I mean, my phone's on silent pretty much always. So the chirp or the ring, I don't know the difference between a uh, text message or a call. And you also, this kind of conclusion is being reached without even knowing if the person had their phone on at the time. I mean, there's so many different things there, Mm -hmm. but where it gets kind of absurd is that in this case that can result in $900 million or $1.8 billion in liability, that same case can not uh, be sufficient to provide article three standing and be heard in federal court because it's not a big deal. And what's, what's been kind of funny in a kind of perverse way is that one of the recent strategies that we've been seeing a lot in these cases and also in kind of ordinary privacy cases where there's statutory damages without any actual real damages is that plaintiffs, a defendant will remove the case to federal court and plaintiffs will seek remand saying, Hey judge, don't worry about it. It's no big deal. They didn't harm us. We are seeking $95 million, but they didn't harm us. And courts have been buying this and Uh saying it's not, there's no injury. 
And but it's for a state card to decide now if the statutory damages of 500, 1500 bucks per call should be awarded. Well, if I can, and, if I can get uh, damages for being annoyed, I'm going to be I'm going to be a rich man. Exactly. I wake and, up annoyed. <laughs> so it's actually funny. And I think it was I forget which circuit it was, but pretty sure it was circuit. If not, it was a district court. But there was a hearing or an appeal on or oral argument on a uh, TCPA case. And during it, one of the judges got a robocall. <laughs> Perfect. That's irritating. talking about that. <laughs> well, I guess, you know, so I'm, I'm sort of, uh, this is typical of me. I'll talk to somebody who's a defense lawyer. I'm like, yeah, that makes complete sense. Then I'll get on the phone with a plaintiff lawyer. You're right. That's up. So what would, a, what would a plaintiff lawyer say? This is more than annoying or this is the statute, therefore? What, so, what, what, what do plaintiff lawyers say? I mean, I think first it's going to be that those calls regarding the um, the warranty are the perfect example of what the statute is designed to prevent, possibly. So those are annoying. Most people would get behind that. So most people would say, I don't really care if that company is going to get crushed by this. They shouldn't be bothering me like this. Um, as far as banks and kind of financial institutions and businesses that have a relationship, I think the argument goes more that first the statute says what it says, but also there are many that will call five, 10 times a day. And that can be frustrating. Mm -hmm. So they'll point to that to say, this is being abused. And also just because it's more cost efficient to make these phone calls using these, these dialing systems, that's great. Use a manual dialer, call your customers with a person, and you can avoid all this. Um, where that argument goes a little awry, though, is that until very least recently, the Supreme Court just entered a ruling on this earlier this year, but until very recently, there was no real consensus on what qualified as automated dialing system outside of a rotary phone is not one. But um, for I example, <laughs> if you're in your car and you have an automated message that says, set up that says, I'm driving, I'll text you back in a minute. Does that violate? And I mean, it's an automated message. You're not manually putting it in, but it doesn't really seem like that's what someone's going for. Um, where post... Um, this uh, it was a Facebook decision post Facebook. Um, some of the arguments that have developed are yes, you're using a system where you are choosing which phone numbers to call and all that, but the source code in your system uses a random number generator to operate the software, and therefore you are still using a random or sequential number generator. So there's the, the plaintiff's bar, there's going to be kind of extremes. There's some that are going to try and find any nuance to say, yeah, technically it's still here. And then there's others that will target more kind of the egregious um, violations. So I would say there's no kind of cohesive response to the plaintiff's bar because you're getting people on both ends of the spectrum. There's so much money in the statute um, if you're successful in taking a class yeah. of action that, or even an individual case with a lot of calls that, you're going to get just a wide array of plaintiff's attorneys and some are going to be very good attorneys. Some are not going to be the best. Mm -hmm. And 
you're going to get everyone in between. Yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's often the case. Um, the, uh, I will say the, the, it seems like the phone, uh, the calls have made these expensive cell phones. We have a little less, uh, effective because, because I actually saw somebody post something on LinkedIn today. I wanted to write back and his question, he was doing a survey. He said, be honest, do you answer your phone anymore? Um, and I'm wondering if he said that because he's getting, people get so many and I will say I've missed calls. I will say my voicemail box has been sometimes clogged and I don't get calls anyway. That's me. Um, so, uh, so you've talked about the automatic tele tele dialing system. I think if we had to use rotary phones, I think that would be a good solution. People, (laughs) they could only make about five calls a day. (laughs) Um, and so, okay. So did, did you want to talk more about considerations in defending, uh, these class actions? It seems like you've discussed some of that. Yeah. So, I mean, I think one of the big things is they, these class actions are in a lot of ways kind of difficult to certify for a number of reasons. And one of the biggest reasons is that even if you have, I mean, basically getting records, to figure out who was called are not always the easiest thing. Because typically, if you have records identifying who was called, you probably and you probably have a relationship with that person and probably have consent at that point. So generally speaking, you're not going to have a good case there. Um, and on the flip side, if you don't have a relationship, then you probably don't have internal records that are identifying them. And even if you do, they're probably not the most reliable records, but beyond that, there, I forget the number, but I think it's something like a hundred thousand phone numbers a day are reassigned. So knowing who you called three months ago does not mean, or knowing whose number it was three months ago, doesn't really mean it's their number today. And there's often not a good way to figure that out. Um, And recently actually, because of these what it's called number churn but because of these reassigned numbers there's a now a reassigned number database and what that allows is that if you check a phone number against this reassigned number database before calling it then you're basically absolved of liability that's a very big oversimplification but that's kind of the idea behind it and the the reason is because there was so many cases involving just wrong number calls where a company might have had consent and perfect consent and just didn't know that the number was reassigned. And there was always a struggle in trying to figure out how to deal with those cases. So at one point, there was a rule that you're allowed one free call before liability attaches. But it was kind of very arbitrary because if the person doesn't answer, what good is that one call? So um, this kind of reassigned number database is a way to help bridge that gap, but kind of understanding first what you're looking at, the how many calls you've made and understanding how you can establish that are very important things to be aware of. And that's going to go a lot towards knowing your risk of certification. And in one of the bases for, or the primary basis for why we prevailed in a recent class action that would have had very draconian penalties was that the plaintiffs had no way of establishing who was involved, who was in the class. They had a list of phone numbers, but they didn't know what to do with that. 
And there was no way to get from phone number to person. So because of that, we defeated the class action. And that's kind of one of those things where you need to really know, really having counsel who understands class actions is very important because mm. that was an issue of ascertainability and whether it was administratively feasible to identify the class. And the case law on that issue is kind of, kind of constantly in flux. The 11th Circuit just recently reversed itself on that one, but with a nuance. And so it, it's always changing. So knowing these technical arguments is just as important as knowing the facts. Um, the other thing is kind of getting out ahead of the facts. So you can have a deposition where you get a bad statement, for example, oh yeah, we send those text messages to tell you about your package being stuck in transit because we're hoping that you'll decide whether you want to send it back and that can drum up more business. The purpose of those texts was not to drum up more business, but if the person says the wrong thing there, you can suddenly walk yourself into this dual purpose problem. So knowing where all these pitfalls are at the front end is very important in order to limit the liability. And, um, I mean, also knowing, being able to forecast where these cases go. So having kind of your head wrapped around what you're dealing with is important because if you look at your records and it does look like you have a problem, you can probably settle for a single plaintiff and maybe you pay a little extra, but you avoid the class action. And a lot of these calls, the, the issue is that, yes, you're getting a lot of them, but no, most people aren't really concerned about the ones that are involving companies that are likely to be solvent. Ooh, so right. um, finding a new class representative might not be easy. Those car yeah, warranty but, but, ones, but taking care of that one complainer and paying them isn't doesn't have a dual purpose. <laughs> You're also trying to get more business. Um, that's actually a very funny point, just quickly. The, um, there's been some class actions where you've needed to, obviously you need to give out class notice. And there have been judges who have said, the best way to provide class notice is text messages. And you well, this is a violation potentially. Yeah. <clears throat> You're sending out these automated text messages with oh this gosh. boilerplate notice to this whole class. I love it. So, and it's comical because the solution to tell the class about it is the cause of the problem. Sure. Is the harm being addressed? <laughs> okay. All right. So uh, let's see. I think we've I think we've covered everything. You, you know, we talked about why it's uh, difficult to navigate uh, TCPA and some of the things you're talking about too. Uh, when you're saying look at you know how you're doing, you're talking about also advising companies on looking at how they're doing things to avoid class actions and stay out of trouble with the TCPA. So to look at their policies and procedures and their vendors and how they're doing things in the first place, right? Yeah, I mean, this is definitely one where an ounce of was it ounce prevention? Of yeah, I can never <laughs> that, get that saying. I'm not sure it's true either. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> I mean, once you get hit with a class action, it's going to be expensive. If there's, I mean, if you're addressing it to protect you from it and not taking a chance of getting certified, it's going to unfortunately be expensive, assuming the other side is competent. So being able to head that off and avoid it is very important. And I mean, there's a number of ways you can do it, but really understanding your system. I mean, if you know you don't use an automated dialing system and under any definition, you're fine. 
then you are going to be in good shape and you don't have concern. The biggest way is to shore up consent. Knowing you have consent is going to protect you in almost every instance. So because there's this dual purpose concern, if you have written consent across the board, you're going to be in a pretty good spot. So that's not always necessarily feasible, but if you don't have that, you have to accept the risk that there's going to be a court that says, well, your purpose was to drum up business because you're a corporation. So you had this dual purpose and needed this elevated level of consent. Um, So there's a number of things you could do, but it's also even broader. You have to pay attention to the state statutes because for example, Florida just passed a, it's called a mini TCPA, which is more or less the same as the TCPA in a lot of ways. It's solely focused to, or primarily it's solely focused towards marketing, but the definition of an automated dialing system is far broader or at least far vaguer. So easily argued to be broader. And that was enacted, I think it was June 30th, July 3rd, I think it was, there was a class action against a barbecue company because it sent out text messages about um, a July 4th barbecue it was doing. So, I mean, they're coming quick. They're, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Those three days. Wait, so. was this a free barbecue? Because I'm in. Um. <laughs> I think maybe then you could say it didn't have a marketing component. That's <laughs> probably dual purpose. Yeah. Right. 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 Um, no, I mean, you mentioned Florida being an outlier. A friend of mine was asked, just asking my opinion. I don't know why. She said, should I get it? She has a service and she's in Florida. And she said, should I get an 800 number? Because everybody knows 561. I think that's the exchange is Florida. And it does, and do people think Florida is weird? So I should have a different number. I said, no, I don't think, I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think it's that bad. I also don't think most people know that 561 is Florida. Um, and the whole time, we're just, what's that? I was originally from New York, so my phone number was 516, which everyone thought oh. was 561. Oh, <laughs> so right, right. reversed right. from everybody. Yeah. <laughs> New York the, thought New York, Florida thought Florida. The um from New York to Florida. Okay, well, that's a whole other story. The uh no, Florida, it's a beautiful state. The uh the thing with uh, in the whole time I'm talking to you, because I do a lot of my promotion through direct email, and I'm and I, I should know this. I'm trying to think. This, this sounds like a lot more punishing than if you violate canned spam, but I'm not sure. I'm just saying this without knowing. <laughs> but but um, so now it's going to make me go back and look and see. Uh, I do know that if you if you send email to somebody in Europe and it's not wanted, man, do they get angry. <laughs> Those Europeans, they don't want your emails. Uh, I'm just going to delete them all. And keep in mind, Europe also has the very intense privacy protections. Yeah. California obviously has. And the privacy. So I would say TCPA is the harshest out there. Yeah. Especially for kind of what's being done. But the the privacy statutes also get into that category. Like the, I think it's the biometric, the EIPA, whatever it's in Illinois. Uh, yeah. Biometric statute. Information Privacy Act. I think Facebook settled a $625 million class yeah. action recently. And this is also one where um, there was a CAFA removal class action that was remanded for no Article Three standing. And that was upheld by the Seventh Circuit. So it can support a $625 million settlement, but also it's not a federal matter. 
because mm-hmm. no one's harmed by it. So yeah. it, it's kind of just, it's similar draconian kind of impact as the TCPA where it doesn't matter if anyone's harmed, you can have cr- crippling liability over minor errors a lot of times. I mean, it could be major, but there's also minor errors could cause that liability or no error that just gets looked at incorrectly. Right. So you, you talked about article three and who can bring these cases. And you said, uh, you know, you you mentioned like the Supreme court, what recent developments there have done to impact this. Is there more you want to say about that? Yeah, there's actually, so there's one very significant one that just came out. It's, it was an FCRA case, a credit reporting case, and it's TransUnion v. Ramirez. And the holding there, the, the relevant holding was that every member, every member of a class needs to have Article Three standing. That was somewhat unsettled among the courts of whether everybody needs to have standing. So could you have a class where the named plaintiff has standing, but all the putative class members do not and get that certified and enter judgment, or is that not necessary? And kind of, there's a few significant impacts there. One is just, first, when you're dealing with this litigation, your counsel needs to be aware of this because one of the arguments we made that we didn't even need to get to ultimately in our case, um, that recent one where we defeated cert, was that you have no way of telling if the person on the other end of the line had their phone on, if their phone was at the bottom of the ocean, any of these things that they were aware of this phone call. So you can't say that they had Article 3 standing because you don't know if they even knew that the phone call happened. So unless you have a class-wide basis to figure that out, and I, I, I cannot think of one that could possibly exist, you have a big hurdle there to establish Article 3 standing for every class member. So um, some of the solutions there might be, or that are attempted by the plaintiff's bar would be things like self-attestation, um, but and that kind of raises its own separate issue. But this holding of the Supreme Court was so significant because now it adds this extra component that everyone needs to have Article Three standing with the caveat that that only means in federal court, if the class action is brought in state court, then state standing rules apply and a lot of states do not have such stringent requirements. So um, the development on Article Three standing is very significant for federal litigation. And very often there's these um, nationwide class actions, which you're probably not gonna be able to do in a state court, but, um, and arguably you can't do in a federal court, which is its own conversation for another day. But, by adding the standing component, it really kind of adds another wrinkle to it. And there was a recent, and this actually just came in my email a moment ago, in the 11th Circuit, there was a decision that it's a violation of, more or less, the idea was that it can be a violation of the FDCPA, another statute that has kind of some harsh penalties, not in the same way as the TCPA, because it's only $1,000 plus attorney's fees, but you can have very easily certified classes. The the violation was that a um, company was, a debt collector was using a mail vendor to send out letters to its, uh, the, the debtors. And that was found to be an unlawful disclosure to a third party. The mail vendor was not reading these letters, obviously. They were just serving the function of kind of streamlining the mailing process. But every letter that went through that mail vendor was arguably a violation 
and you can easily get a class action very i mean there's very a lot of common elements there so class action started kind of spurning up over this argument and then the 11th circuit replaced the opinion i want to say a couple of weeks ago and then apparently today the 11th circuit agreed to hear the case on bonk so we'll get a third version of this ruling soon probably and but it's one of the big issues there was that first there was an argument that there was Article Three standing for the class members because this was an unlawful disclosure, even though what harm did the consumer have from a mail vendor being used? Right. And then the Supreme Court entered the TransUnion v. Ramirez case, which seemed to cast a lot of doubt on that conclusion that there's Article Three standing in this situation. In uh, TransUnion v. Ramirez, the issue was that very simplified people were being labeled as potentially terrorists to, to kind of show kind of the level of concern that could be involved there. And the class was you, the, the general line that the Supreme court drew was that if this information that you were a potential terrorist was transmitted outside of the credit reporting agency to a third party, you had article three standing. If it was never transmitted to anyone, then it's kind of a, did a tree fall in the woods, make right. a sound, right. no harm, no foul. It does. So, oh, sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> I gotcha. I so, so, <laughs> so didn't, uh, I don't know. So didn't uh, Ramirez, um, I did the blog post on it. I'm trying to remember now. I mean, didn't have to do with how many people, was it how many people were harmed or how many people had standing or is that the same thing? Because like you, you can have some number, was it de minimis uh, number? of people who had harm? Well, there was, so I want to say a third of the class had standing and two thirds did not was the outcome there. Right. Okay. But it was, if the, I mean, they just do the line of, if there's disclosure, yes. If there's no disclosure, no. Prior to that, there was some case law would say if there was the minimus number of people with um, that in the class that lacked article three standing, then it might be fine. There was some issues there. And um, sorry, I said uh, <laughs> that's okay. You're getting a call. <laughs> um, no, that's all right. Because uh, I, you know, I'll, I'll throw in a note about about that case. Um, you know, I should I should remember more of it. I actually re- summarized it, but uh, but that was my memory was uh, there was argument over like just how many is is enough. Well, that was the focus. Of the argument was, I think, whether there could be a de minimis amount and all that. But when they drew the line, I think it was pretty hard and fast. Uh, right. One one interesting thing from the opinion, though, is that there is a footnote in there that says that they are not deciding the question of whether you need to establish Article Three standing at the time of certification. So you might be able to certify a class where it's filled with class members who lack Article Three standing. And I guess the idea is that you would need to sort that out later. And that kind of ties into this administrative feasibility, ascertainability component of you can run into issues if a court's going to certify a class that ultimately could never be treated as a class because you're never going to have a way of figuring out who has a valid claim and has Article Three standing. It, it's a very 
unfortunate exercise because the moment class is certified, the idea of fighting on that and hoping for decertification is probably not going to be palatable to a defendant. So they're probably going to settle for a class that reasonably should not have been certified. Mm -hmm. So that's been something that has always been kind of developing the courts. And I think it's going to continue to be a focus, uh, especially with the Supreme Court leaving that question unanswered. Um, I think the circuits will keep addressing, do you need to figure this out in the front end or not? Because I mean, for a TCPA, I don't see how you can ever say in the front end, you know who has Article Three standing. And I think that's a very strong block there. I got so you. Um, it'll be significant and it'll be something that probably will be developing for the next several years, I imagine. Right. Yeah, it sounds like it. So, um, you know, this is just, this is, well, so you've done a good job of showing just how incredibly important this law is for companies that are doing any kind of telemarketing, if that's still the right word, or or any kind of calling to potential customers. Um, and it's also another example where the technology is moving so fast, the law is it's kind of leaving the law in the dust. I mean, that's the same. They're saying the same thing about antitrust laws, um, privacy laws, other privacy laws, um, employment law. I mean, the, the, the rapidity of the the technology development going on, it's really throwing a monkey wrench into a lot of like statutes that were written, you know, in the nineties or the fifties right? <laughs> so, or, or earlier. So we, we recently uh, prevailed in a putative class action that was brought under a wiretapping statute where the idea was a company that was using software on its website to basically optimize the experience right. was somehow wiretapping um, visitors to the website without their knowledge and consent. And wow. th- this became kind of a widespread theory that was popular for a moment. It's, it's been met with pretty much universal um, right. rejection, yeah. but it was something that was very aggressively pursued for a period of time. And it's it just kind of a, one of the arguments was this statute was designed for someone to, wiretap it was not designed for this website activity where so many different things are going on and one of the things that's funny we argued was on the court's own website there was analytic tools that could be considered wiretapping under this theory so if you're going to try and establish extend it to new technologies you get into a ridiculous position um and that's kind of always the fight of should the statute follow the spirit of it, of what technologies and what types of conduct it was intended to go after, or is it, it's attacking this technology. Mm. And if technology changes, Congress can update it and say, we mean this technology. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Yeah. It's so funny. Even, even the, the, the word wiretapping phrase, wiretapping, even that sounds old. Sometimes there's no wires involved at all. So, I mean, it's just, uh, it dates itself. Well, is there anything else that you wanted to talk about? I think we've really covered the, the gamut here. I think, so. yeah, I think we covered a pretty good amount. I, one yeah. other thing, just quickly on that last point is when you're talking about these advances in technology, now there's also the uh, voice over IP. There's all right. sorts of different technologies on what does that even involve? Is that a cell phone? Are you involving a landline? And I mean, you can get into so many complicated positions that courts are going to continue trying to interpret a statute that doesn't apply to technology and you get really entertaining yeah. and 
troubling yeah. result at times. <laughs> yeah. Even again, landline, you know, it's not, I think I have a landline, but it's really voice over internet. There's no line. Right. <laughs> it's just, it's, it's great. Well, uh, uh, Joe Apatov, thank you very much for talking with me about all this today. It was an interesting, enlightening conversation. I appreciate you taking the time. This is fun. That brings us to the end of this episode of the Emerging Litigation Podcast. I want to thank Joe Apatov very much taking so much time and, and uh, sharing his insights and his experience on the uh, on this important law, which is, you know what? It's way more of a wild card than I thought it was. And uh, that's what it's all about. We're learning and having fun. He is with the McGlinchey Stafford Consumer Financial Services Litigation Practice Group in their Fort Lauderdale office. And uh, as I said, this is based on an article he has written for the forthcoming spring edition of the Journal on Emerging Issues in Litigation. So the journal is something I'm doing in collaboration with Fastcase. They're called Fastcase Full Court Press. And um, this, uh, and the podcast, of course, is in collaboration with their sister company, Law Street Media. So you might check those out. They also have, uh, they also have a great service called Docket Alarm, which I use every day. I don't get anything for saying that. They, um, uh, so they're great to work with and check those out. Also, please... Take advantage of this podcast. Write to us at editor at litigationconferences.com. Tell us what you think. Tell us if you'd like to be on it. You never know. I'm <laughs> very selective. And um, you know what? Give us a rating. How hard can that be? So go to Apple, go to Spotify, wherever you get a podcast, and uh, give us a rating. That means a lot to us in generating uh, new listeners and uh this is growing, this podcast. It's also, you can access it uh, through LinkedIn. You can follow us there, too, if you don't want to um, do it through a podcast platform. So, once again, this is Tom Hagee with HB Litigation Conferences and Custom Legal Content. And uh, I am your, lit- your litigation enthusiast. I, what am I? Am I trying to come up with a nickname or something? I'm not going to do that. So, hey, thank you for listening. Hope to see you on the next one. Hope to see you subscribing or give us a rating. See you next time.